Here is that passage that Nick has just been quoting from. So if you have a Bible with you, it's James chapter 1. We'll be reading the first 18 verses. James 1, 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature, mature and complete, not lacking anything. But if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go out about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that you would bless it to our hearts and strengthen us for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's quite odd sitting here in the holiest of holies on the, on the throne, as it were, but I just do want to give a huge amount of thanks while I'm here to our pastor having occupied this seat now for so many weeks, and this is just part of it. There's so much more that he's had to do in order to keep this going. So Nick, a, a great, great thanks to you. I'm going to take as my text this morning just verses 16 to 18, and I'm going to read them from a slightly different version, just because it gives a slightly different light on it. I'm reading from the new King James Version, and it says this, 16 to 18. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is certainly the most practical of all of the letters written by, as we know, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem at that time. I guess it would be an understatement to say right now that life is hard. We wouldn't be arguing about that. Where do we feel that God might be testing us? Because this is what James is saying. God is testing us. Some may say, well, it's about health, isn't it? It's about this virus. Maybe we're really struggling or some of our loved ones are struggling with health at the moment. Other people will say, no, I'm being really tested by work or not having work. Others will say, I'm tested by the stress of, of family life at the moment. It's really difficult living together in such tight uh, confines so much of the time. Others feel betrayed because it's difficult when you're, somebody lets you down. For some, it might be money because uh, money we know is, is, uh, is, uh, is the, the love of money is the, is the root of all kinds of evil. And it, it tends to be, money tends to be the number one cause of domestic problems, especially marital problems. But our trials are designed specifically for us. God, you might say, fits our trials to who we are. He fits the trial to the person. So that what happens to me can't be compared to what happens to you and vice versa. Our struggles are not all the same because we have a wise and heavenly Father who fits our trials to us. This James, this half-brother of Jesus, would agree with that. In a sense, his whole letter is about how to respond to these very difficult times, especially when we're under pressure. And I advise you to have a read of it. Maybe read it several times. Maybe read it every evening for the next week. It's one of those kinds of, of books. James has already reminded us that trials are a necessary part of our spiritual lives. He does that in the first couple of verses. And then he says that there is great blessing, a crown of life that is reserved for those who respond correctly to trial and do not blame God when hard times come. But this morning's text, he takes the argument another step he, he, by reminding us that God is good all of the time. God is good all of the time, even during our, most, our harshest trials. We can say it this way. God is not on trial during our tribulations. We are. He often uses hard times to put our faith to the test. We know that. And this passage in front of us this morning, these three verses, 16 to 18, show us three things we need to remember if we're going to pass this test, whatever that might be, with flying colors. And the first thing is this, remember God's love. Remember God's love. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived, he says. When hard times come, when hard time comes, it's very easy to blame God. Even if we don't use those words, Adam did it in the Garden of Eden, if you like, made excuses. And the excuses we use are many. Uh, it's not my fault. Uh, I didn't deserve this. You started it. The devil made me do it. I can't control myself. I can't make choices. They had it in for me. The whole thing was rigged against me. I've had a string of bad luck. 
And if I were older or younger or richer or smarter or single or married or better educated or better connected, this wouldn't have happened to me. All those excuses. But in the end, if you look carefully, all our excuses lead back to God. He is the one with whom we have to do. He made us. God made us. God gave us life. And one day we will give account to him for how we have lived these lives. Our well-oiled excuses on that day will be exposed to us as lies when we stand in his blinding light of perfection. So James says, don't be deceived into thinking you can blame God for anything. The first thing James wants us to see is that all of our excuses lead us back to God. And then he adds something quite important. He calls his readers my beloved brothers or my beloved brothers and sisters. And that's not just a term of affection. James is a very practical writer. And I guess in a practical sense, James didn't even know all the people he was writing to. Of course, he couldn't have, because his letter would have been circulated through all of the churches in the area. So it's not as if he's starting by his letter by saying, I really love you guys. It's not so much that. He's reminding us that as his brothers and sisters, we are all beloved by God. God loves all of us in a deep, deep way. So what he's saying is when you are tempted to give up, remember how much God loves you. And if, if you take away that this morning and nothing else, remember in this time of testing, God loves you. H.B. Charles Jr. says it this way, the peril of the unredeemed sinner is unbelief. But the peril of the redeemed sinner is misbelief. We have to beware of misbelief. We misbelieve when we forget that God saved us. We, have, we, we, we misbelieve when we forget what it cost God to save us. We misbelieve when we forget the pit from which we, we came and were rescued. We misbelieve if we ever accuse God of mistreating us. And there is no cure for misbelief other than replacing the falsehood with truth. I recently read a testimony of a, a lady who came to know Christ, and she came from a background of brokenness and sinfulness, and she committed herself almost every sin you can imagine. And when she started coming to church um, after her conversion, uh, she, she sent an email to her minister at the time, uh, explaining how she had come to Christ. And I thought I'd read it to you because I, I think it's, 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 it's a very powerful testimony. She says this, One night I was driving home in a rush hour traffic on the motorway and listening to a Christian radio station. She says, I can't tell you exactly who was speaking, but someone was talking about the crucifixion. And I didn't know what happened. I suddenly started crying and something like, Jesus, please forgive me for sinning against you. I'm so sorry after all you did for me. Look what I have done for you. I know who you are now. And she says the feeling in that car was overwhelming. I didn't know what was going on then, but now I know. The Holy Spirit swooped down on me. He called me to Jesus, and I came. Isn't that something, she says? The most incredible experience of my life and it happened in a rush hour traffic jam on a cold November night. I left the house that morning and came back that night a different woman. I had no clue as to what was going on. 
but to quote my favorite song, which seems so very appropriate and which in one sentence certainly sums up what has happened to me since I came to Christ. And the, and the verse is, I, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And she signed her email, li lingering at the foot of the cross, lingering at the foot of the cross. And that's where we ought to be all of the time. As long as we linger at the foot of the cross and remember God's love for us, and we contemplate what Jesus did for us, we are not going to be deceived when time comes. I know some people who wear a crucifix, and maybe that's when you get hold of that, when you're deepest time, just get a hold of it, and hold it on just to remind you, there's nothing magical about the crucifix, but just to remind you to linger at the cross, or pinch yourself, just to remind you to linger at the foot of the cross. We need to remember God's love. Secondly, we need to remember God's goodness. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's a sudden change in subject here, isn't there? But the flow of thought is clear. We must not blame God for our temptations. Because evil desire leads to sin, and sin leads to death, as James says. Twice James in this passage warns us not to blame God for our promises. When we sin, we have only ourselves to blame. But we must remember everything good comes from God. Verse 17 sets up this contrast. Everything good in this world ultimately comes from God. He is the father of lights. If it is good, God made it. If it is good, God gave it, and God sent it. In certain churches in the U.S., when I was attending there and back home in South Africa, they did two things that we are quite uncommon in churches here. One was that they would state the Apostles' Creed. You know, the Apostles' Creed, a very short 30, 40-second statement of faith, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, heaven, maker of heaven and earth, and so on. And they would say that very often right near the beginning of the service. And something else they would do, when the collection was taken, they would sing something called the doxology. Instead of a prayer, they would sing, and you'll remember this maybe, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's what we ought to be doing. Praising, because as, as, as Paul says in the book of Acts, it is in God that we live and move and have our very being. Do we really understand that we are alive right now at this time because God wants us alive at this time? We breathe now because he gives us air to breathe and lungs to take it in. If God withdrew his hand of blessing, not one of us would take another breath. We see and we hear and we move and we think and laugh and clap and dream and cry all because of God. I suppose we know all that, but how often do we think about it? Rarely do we stop to think of the blessing of life itself. The list of sick and suffering seems to have no end. We're all going to get sick and we're all going to leave this planet on Sunday, but we need to remember God is the God of life. 
There are those who teach that we will never get sick. They're having a tough time, those word of faith folk during this virus because they're finding far too many of their folk are getting sick and are not getting cured as they would hope. Yet, despite all of that, we linger at the foot of the cross. If you can see and you can hear me, then you're alive. And if you're alive, it is a gift from God. If God has given you the gift of life, we need to give thanks to him. We ought to ponder what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Have you got anything at all that you didn't receive from God? Do we boast or find ourselves proud of certain things, of our wealth, our fame, our talent, our accomplishments? Do we think that our looks come only from our DNA? Who gave us our talents? Who gave us our strengths? Who gave us our creativity, our ingenuity? Who gave us the blessings that we take for granted every day? It's like gentle rain from heaven. Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice says this, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as gentle rain from heaven. Quite a theologian was our Shakespeare. He didn't live the Christian life all that much, but boy, did he say some theologically sound things. The quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as gentle rain from the heavens. Mercy always comes downwards. It starts with God and it moves towards us. You don't bargain for mercy because to make a bargain, you have to have something to offer. And you don't, and we don't. We have nothing to offer God. Mercy indeed is like this gentle rain that softens the hard soil of the human heart. We are alive today because God wants us to be alive. And you need to know this, and I need to know this, because we are far worse sinners than we think we are. Nick's taking us through the book of Malachi, pointed that out to me in no uncertain terms. We are far worse sinners than we think we are. I heard a sermon by Joyce Meyer the other day, and please, if you've got any of her books, take them off your shelves. She said in the sermon the other day, and she got great cheers for it by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, I no longer sin. I have gone beyond sin. I'm no longer a sinner. I don't sin anymore. She's got it wrong. Even the best Christians in the world would have no hope of heaven without the shining mercy of God. If God did not forgive and keep on forgiving, if he did not continue to pour out his mercy like gentle rain from heaven, we would be utterly and completely lost. What kind of God do we serve? He's completely good. He's constantly good. He's unchangeably good. God will never not be good. God will never not be good. God can never be less than good. Everything he is and everything he does is good. In, no situ in every situation, no matter what, God is good. All the time, in every situation, no matter what, I say it again, God is good. And it's one thing to say God is good as a kind of abstract statement, almost like a theological cheer, as it were. But it's much better if you think about these other statements. God is good in every situation. God is good no matter what. Best of all, 
is to make it really personal by saying, I am witness to God's goodness. I am witness to God's goodness. Sometimes it's hard to say, I know that. And I know folks close to me who, who found that very hard to, to say in, in, in certain times, especially during these tough times. Hard to say. And even when we think we know what will happen tomorrow, life can turn in just a moment. No one knows what a day will bring forth. And that's a solemn fact. Life is not just one thing. It's good and it's bad. It's sickness and it's health. It's weeping and it's rejoicing. It's life and it's death. It's war and it's peace all mixed together. That's why we need a God in whom there is no shadow of turning, no shadow of change, no change, but not even a shadow of change. God is the still stable point in our changing world. God is not good today and bad tomorrow. He does not capriciously change his mind and decide to be kind today and harsh tomorrow. We're like that. God is not. So when we're tempted to give up, remember the goodness of God. When you feel like giving in to any kind of temptation, remember the goodness of God. When you want to resign from life and forget it all, remember the goodness of God. So we remember the love of God, we remember the goodness of God, and finally, we need to remember God's grace. Of his own will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As James is thinking here of, of the goodness and grace of God, he turns to an illustration. He brought us forth. In the, in the New International Version, it says he gave us birth. And that's what it is. God's grace is amplified and it's, it's, it's shown most clearly in the rebirth, the new birth. And I want to say this, it always starts with God. When we talk about birth, new birth, rebirth, it always starts with God. The text says God saved us of his own will. Whatever else we say about free will and human responsibility and choice, you need to remember one thing very clearly. Salvation doesn't start with us. It all starts with God. That's grace. There's a story told of a new convert who rose with great joy in a prayer meeting in his church to share his testimony of how he'd recently come to God and how Jesus had saved him. And he gave this wonderful testimony. And afterwards, an older Christian, thinking to admonish him, turned to him and said, my brother, that was wonderful what you said, but you didn't say anything about your part in salvation. The new convert replied, my part in my salvation was to run from the Lord as fast as I could. God's part was to pursue me until he found me and saved me by his grace. James would agree with that answer. Salvation, as the Bible says, is of the Lord. We sometimes say, I found the Lord. And that is partly true. But if the Lord didn't find us first, we would never have found him. That is so, so important. God's grace produces new life. And why do we need this new life? The answer is simple. We need new life because the old life is not good enough. 
It's filled with sin and disobedience. And James has just said in verses 14 and 15, that old life leads to sin and it leads to death. Warren Wearsby, the the commentator, says this, by granting us new birth, God declares that he cannot accept the old birth. He rejects your first birth, no matter how noble it might have been in the eyes of men. He announces you need a second birth. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, that very worthy man, that very educated man, you must be born again, Nicodemus. The new birth is not an option if you wish to go to heaven. Even the best amongst us need to be born again. It is a gift of God given by grace and received by faith. And God's grace comes by the word of truth, as we see in verse 18. This is why we preach the word, but it is not our word that brings truth. Nick or I can talk till we're blue in the face, but our words can never give life. Our words are human words. They have all the limitations that go with our flesh. Our words may amuse or comfort or anger or embitter. They may instruct or they may challenge. But our words in and of themselves have no power to give life. Only God and his word can give life. God's word is different altogether because it comes from God and it has ultimate authority. It is true. It is 100% reliable. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 reminds us that the word of God is alive and it is active. It is spoken of as a sword, a sword that can lay bare the hidden secrets of the heart. And when we preach God's word in the power of God's spirit, it then penetrates every heart, reveals every sin, exposes every excuse, shows us our need, and then it leads us to the cross of Christ where we can be forgiven. God's grace utterly transforms us. The Jewish readers in the first century were familiar with this concept of the first fruits. Remember that when he talks about the first fruits, he says we should be a kind of first fruit of his creation. Each year, the earliest part of the harvest was to be set aside by the Hebrew people, set aside for the Lord as testimony that the whole harvest actually belonged to him. And we are now called the first fruits of God's creation. That means, I think, that we are a sign to the world that a great harvest is underway. God intends to use us to display his grace to the whole world. We are to be exhibit A, the first fruits, exhibit A, of what God can do in fallible, broken people. You might say our job is to be fallible and broken, if you like. God's job is to show his grace through people like us. And he's working at that day and night. We are indeed broken and fallible people. And that puts our trials in a whole new perspective. Recently, I came across a post on someone's Facebook page. It said this, when it is all finished, you will discover that it was never random. When it is all finished, then you will discover that it was never random. If our life seems random at the moment, we we must be sure that it is not finished. 
We are never really finished and perfected in this life because God always has more work to do in us. And I'm reminded, I've, I've mentioned it before, on a visit to the Billy Graham uh, homestead in Charlotte, North Carolina. You can go and they've showed the house where Billy Graham was born and you can go through the museum and see all of these wonderful testimonies to his ministry around the world. Then you can go down into the woods and you see the graves of different people who worked with Billy. There's the grave of George Beverly Shea and others, and Billy is now buried there. But the most interesting grave of all was the grave of his wife, Ruth, Ruth Graham. And on her grave, she put something that she'd seen while she was traveling down the road one day, and she was passing some roadworks, or what had been roadworks. And on this roadworks was something that she said, I want you to put that on my gravestone. And what did it say? It said, construction over. Thank you for your patience. What a wonderful thing to have written on your gravestone. Construction over. Thank you for your patience. It's not finished yet. So as we come to the end of what I want to say this morning, let's wrap up by reminding ourselves of the truth we've heard before. It's not about me, it's about God. It's not about now, it's all about eternity. Very often the here and now doesn't make sense to us. Now I've got no magic formula to give you that will dispel your fears, to take away your confusion or wipe away your tears. We are reminded that over and over into each life, some rain must fall. Sometimes it sprinkles, sometimes it pours, and sometimes the floodwaters threaten to overwhelm us. Said another way, if you ever get to the place where all your questions are answered and all your problems are gone and all your trials have vanished, if you ever get to that place, sit back and relax. You've already made it to heaven. But between now and then, there are dangers and toils and snares ahead of us. And no one is exempt from the troubles of this life. But the grace of God that has taken us this far will safely lead us home to God. Another recent Facebook post read this, hope is tough. You can't really halfway hope. Either you hope for something or you don't. And then it continued, our God is good and faithful and gracious and he loves to show those attributes to us if we pay enough attention to catch them and so i've been trying to say that paying attention to these attributes of god his love his goodness his grace to hope more in the unseen than in the seen is part of the secret it's a great way to put it i think i'm glad our hope doesn't depend on the fickle sway circumstances but on the solid rock we call God and that's what James is talking about in this passage so finally just two sentences when the hard times come remember God's love remember God's goodness and remember God's grace because you see a good memory of the right things will keep you strong when the hard times hit Father, we thank you again for your word. Take it, put it in our hearts. Help us to remember it. Help us to use it. 
And above all, Lord, do a work in our hearts, we pray, that we might be examples, exhibit A, the first fruits of what you can do, what miracles you can bring about in the life of broken and fallible people. Use us in your service, we pray, in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.